Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our central membership for the first year. And now to today's episode. So as part of my exponential age thesis, I think that our own exponential age or your exponential age, my exponential age, is something that is important too. Science is having breakthroughs about how people live longer. And I think quality of life and longevity of life are two really important things. And I think they're going to change dramatically in the next 20 or 30 years. Already, people around the world are living longer. And so Tom Billy is a good friend of mine, and he's been down this rabbit hole for a long time. And so I want to pick his brains for all of us, to figure out how to make our lives better and how to create our own exponential age. Now, there's a lot to go through, and I don't think we'll get through it all in one go, but let's see where we get to, and there's a lot to digest. So enjoy and listen, and we'll probably bring more of Tom back to take you down this journey too. When change comes, opportunity abounds. We're about to enter a period of the fastest pace of technological change in all human history, something we refer to as the exponential age. And Real Vision is going to be your guide to this incredible future. Tom, it's great to get you back. It's great to be back. I always love our conversations because there's always so much to talk about. This one I'm going to do differently because... You unfairly get me onto impact theory and you pick my brain, knowing that I've been speaking to everybody in Web3 and finance and everything else, and you get the data dump from me. I'm going to do the same to you on a different topic, just because I think it's interesting and I think people are going to like it. So one of my big theses of the world is this thing called the exponential age, which is the advent of all of these technologies coming together. And I think one of them, I even wrote an article about it, is our own exponential age as people, health, longevity, and all of this. And you spend a huge amount of time on impact theory digging into all of this. So I want to pick your brain and let the people at Real Vision go through some of your journey of learning all of this, because it's it's different. I think it's really interesting. And I think it's really important for people because, you know, we all work so hard. There's so much going on. But at the end of it, all we've got is our health, our relationships, and our minds. And I think it's it's a good topic to talk about. No, I mean, I agree. You're up for it? I am up for it. This is one of the most important things in my life. And it'll be interesting to talk about how that ended up coming to be, because I find it completely uh, boring. I wish I didn't have to think about this stuff, but it is so transformational. Yeah, because I've gone down a lot of this journey as well, but I think you're much further than me on it. So this is where I want to go. So let's start at the beginning. How did you, why did you start thinking about 
stuff like health, wellness, well-being, all of this. Tell me the story. Yeah. So in the very beginning, it was, I grew up in a morbidly obese family. And so I joke, uh, sort of, you know, gallows humor that my family were early adopters of the obesity trend. So my family was morbidly obese before it was like a thing. And so I remember being aware as a kid growing up, my family is fat. Like that was like a thing. I was like, whoa, like it's very noticeable. And now it's so fascinating to look at photos of them back then because they were so much leaner than they are now. And then just the whole epidemic is just ramped up so heavily. So anyway, that was on my mind. And so I had really kept that at bay until my mid-20s. And I was eating less than I'd ever eaten. And I was hungry and I was putting on fat. And so I was like, what is happening? And so I thought, well, you get older, your metabolism slows down, just like the classic uh, thinking. But thankfully, I was in my mid-20s, you know, in the what or early 2000s. And so there was the internet is starting, people are starting to get a bit more information, it was easier to talk to people and get some ideas about what was going on. And I get control of my own health. And I, and if I'm completely honest, I did not get control of my health, I wanted to look good naked. And so that was a driving force. And uh, I wanted to impress my wife. And so I was very keen to get strong and to look good naked. And those were my two driving factors. And I actually figured it out. And so then I was like, whoa, wait a second. This is a very solvable problem. And so once I realized it was- Hold on, stop, 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 stop. You just said, well, then I figured it out. Most people don't figure it out, right? They go to straight calorie restriction. It's a miserable life. They're always hungry. What did you figure out at this point? Okay, so- I'm going to get, I'm just going to cut through all the bullshit. I'm going to save everybody a gazillion years of time. And there are going to be debates around the edges of what I say, but I'm telling you right now, if people do what I'm about to articulate, they, they will be 98% of the way to where they want to be. It's just, it is so absurdly simple to get that, you know, the Pareto principle to get the, the bulk of what you need to do done. And it goes like this. You are going to eat whole food. So if you don't recognize it from how it was walking around or being grown, you've got a problem. So start with that. You're going to cut out the highly processed stuff. You're going to eat whole food and you're going to minimize anything that spikes your glucose. Now, you can be hardcore like me and actually wear a continuous glucose monitor to find things because there are things like baby carrots that you wouldn't think are going to spike your glucose, but they do. And so, and it's, it is very individualistic. But anyway, the advice I have for everybody, eat whole food whenever possible, avoid processed foods, um, and minimize anything that spikes your blood glucose. And that means cut out sugar. That's like the big one, which is already, if you're not eating processed food, they're just you're not going to find things that are as high in sugar. But there are things like fruit. When people conflate fruit and vegetables, I'm always like, what? So berries you could maybe conflate with vegetables, but you can't just blanket fruit. That's crazy town. So whole food, minimize things to spike your blood sugar. If you do that, you are 98% of the way to where you want to be in terms of health, in terms of performance, in terms of aesthetics, all of it. Like that's the big one. Then of course, that's a diet. There are other lifestyle factors that we can We're get coming into. to all of that, but I just want to establish that. And I, you know, I followed the ketogenic diet for a long time. I've actually come off it a bit and allowed myself beans and some other stuff. I haven't worn a 
um, uh, glucose monitor. But we'll come into that. So you make this change when you're young, as you said. Then what? Where, what's, what's your journey at this point? Well, so unfortunately, everything that I'm telling you now, I'm telling you with a massive amount of the things I was doing in my 20s were moronic. And so I do all of this experimentation and failure and all that. And finally, now, after interviewing hundreds of people, building a nutrition company, being totally immersed in that world, transforming my own body, saving my wife's life, not kidding, not exaggerating in the slightest, by learning even more advanced stuff about health. So I was like, okay, I've now got the, the real life experience where I've seen this play out. And of ones, I'm well aware of that. But th this is one where while we may discover over time that there are different, different mechanisms of action than we think, and we may discover, hey, some of those things that make you feel amazing uh, in your youth may actually not extend your life in the way that you want. So for sure, in that remaining 2%, like we can really eke things out and push things forward and, and we can even go into that stuff. But getting the the bulk of it is huge but i did that through a lot of trial and error so in my 20s i was doing what you were saying i was starving myself i was hungry all the time my life was miserable i was shredded though six pack abs i once Raul, this is like if anybody needs motivation to get in shape if they're anything wired like me this is my favorite story so i'm at a pool party with my wife i've i've just done two of the most miserable years of my life to where my business partners and my wife pulled me aside and they said, you no longer have a personality because my, my calories were so restricted and I was doing what I'll call rabbit starvation. So I was eating basically no carbohydrates, basically no fat and just getting everything from protein. Stupid, nobody should do it, but it will get you lean with just obscene amounts of inflammation, but I was lean as hell. And so anyway, at a pool party with my wife, woman swims across the pool, gets out, comes up, looks at my wife and says, can I pet your husband's abs? And I was like, sure. And so she's like, wow. And I was like, every bit of suffering was worth it. Now, I do not need people to agree with that because health is way more important. And the good news is that you actually can do both, but I didn't know that at the time. So through my 20s and early 30s, I was just making every conceivable mistake that you can make, but starting to learn like, okay, so that's how I get lean, but it's not reducing my inflammation. What is inflammation? How is it? Yeah, that's a, that's a question I think people need to hear because people yeah. think inflammation. I've I've you know banged my elbow and it's inflamed, but that's not what we're talking about. Well, it is. Yeah, but it so isn't. it exactly it's the same mechanism, but now and and I will just round this to this isn't the totality of it. Again, I'm going to talk Pareto principle. Anything you want to go deep in, we can dive past just that. But Pareto principle around inflammation, it, it is ex the reason I say eat whole foods avoid sugar is because those are the things that are going to inflame you. Both all the processing agents and things that go into the foods and the way the processing can change the molecular structure. So trans fat is the easiest one to explain. So, so much of your cell membranes are made out of fat. It's part of what makes them flexible. The fat molecule itself has a bend in it, which makes it quite flexible. When you fry fat, it becomes rigid but you literally are what you eat. So if the only fat that you're intaking into your body is fried fat, then your cells are actually gonna be made from this rigid stuff. That's part of what's gonna be creating the inflammation. The other part is, I mean, it, it is a wildly complicated thing that I'm going to grossly oversimplify so that people can intake it because all I need people to do is actually the behaviors, right? So 
first of all, not all of these mechanisms of action are yet fully understood, even by the brightest of minds. I am not the brightest of minds. So it's like, I have to really round this down. But to, to keep it simple, as you're intaking these highly processed foods, as you're intaking foods that have glyphosate and things like that on them, you're breaking down what's called the epithelial lining of your gut. Now, the reason that becomes problematic is it's going to let partially digested chunks of basically proteins make their way into your bloodstream. The really bad part of this is that some of those chunks of protein actually look like other uh, parts of your body. And I don't remember, I think it's the hypothalamus, but don't hold me to that. But the gluten protein, the reason that so many people are developing gluten sensitivities is as we've you know genetically modified this, um, you're getting gluten molecules that look different than they used to. And it's biomimicry of, I think the hypothalamus, but definitely a part of your brain. And because if you have leaky gut, where that epithelial lining is broken, you almost certainly also have leaky brain for the exact same reason. The exact same foods are causing the exact same problem. So they cross the barrier into your bloodstream. Your body amounts an immune response. To do that, it looks at the shape of the protein and says, create an antibody for this. Would be fine if it didn't biomimic a piece of your brain that your body now goes, oh, here's that invader again. And this is how you get brain fog and if you're really sensitive to this. And so, yeah, I, as somebody who has had brain fog and was like, what the hell could this be from? Because in my case, it wasn't from wheat. It was from pecans. Who would have thought? Uh, so even doing that 80% thing that I'm talking about is not bulletproof because you might have an N of one response to something. So for whatever reason, my sister and I are hypersensitive to pecans. So I discovered that the hard way. But brain fog is real. That's what's happening. You're breaking the blood-brain barrier in your brain. And now things are getting into your bloodstream inside of your brain that you don't want. And you're getting those negative responses. You're getting that immune response. So as the immune system overreacts and is doing what it's supposed to be doing, it's now creating this high level of inflammation in your body. And that high level of inflammation has really uh, deleterious effects if it is prolonged. Most people don't realize that it's based on something they're eating. And so now they're getting themselves into a world of hurt because they just keep eating that food, keep eating that food, keep pumping those particles into their bloodstream. The immune system's going crazy. And there, there is a very, um, I would say, well-researched theory. So this isn't proof, but it's certainly um, a working model that most chronic diseases are a result of prolonged inflammation. And now I'm just guessing, but I think this is a very educated guess. I will say that most of that chronic inflammation is due to what you eat. It won't be 100%, but it's going to be close. And then there's that weird trick that your mind plays is releasing dopamine for sugars and all of the bad stuff. So you eat that to make yourself feel better, which makes yourself feel worse, and you create more inflammation, and people go down that cycle forever. Yeah, it's even more terrifying than that. So that's like the, the downstream of first your microbiome changes and your microbiome really does have levers to compel your brain to do things. And so if you are eating all of the sugar and all of that, you're gonna have a thriving microbiome that expects that food. And so now it's going to manipulate you through neurochemistry. And for people that don't know, 70 to 80% of the serotonin in your body, okay, the thing that stops you from being depressed, supposedly there's like a whole thing about that that we might want to talk about. But 
70 to 80% of the serotonin in your body, which is a neurotransmitter, is produced in your gut and it can be released based on what is happening in your microbiome. So you have these bacteria in your cells that are communicating to your brain through the gut-brain access, and it's saying, hey, we want more of that sugar stuff. And so now you have, like you're saying, these incredible cravings, but you're gonna have those cravings until you eat something that starves that bacteria to death and it goes away and now you have other bacteria that start craving more healthy things. So people have said this from the beginning of time and nobody who's in the grips of like cake, cookie, pies, they, they will not believe you. But truly, truly on the other side of starving that bacteria to death that wants to process that sugar, you stop craving it. And so you start craving things that are much healthier. And the way that you feel is so different. Like nobody has to tell me not to overeat junk food because I don't like the way that I feel. But if you've spent your whole life feeling like ass, you, you don't realize that, oh my God, like there's this sense of just well-being, feeling good, having energy, all of that. But you have to get on the other side of what for me was three weeks of legitimate torture. And I was a total crybaby during that phase. And if it wasn't for my wife who shamed me into manning up, um, I probably would have backed out and never broken my addiction to sugar. And so what kind of diet do you follow now? So we talked about this, the, the basics of the diet. Is it full keto or other people are using vegan as the way forward within this, but it's harder to get your protein? How are you thinking of a balanced diet for you these days? And then we'll come into fasting and a whole bunch of other stuff after that. Yeah, so I think the key, everybody needs to understand that nutrition is is truly N of one. So while I will stand by that, it, it's gotta be 99.999% of people will benefit from whole foods and reducing things despite their glucose. Now, within that though, what things you eat to take advantage of whole foods and to keep your glucose produced is gonna be different for different people. And it, it is largely based on your microbiome. So that means it's gonna change over time. So you really do need to experiment with what foods sit well with me. So like my wife and I can't eat the same things because she decimated her microbiome. Long story, that's how I ended up learning so much about this as an intervention because I, I legitimately was afraid she was going to die at one point. It was absolutely terrifying. Her hair was falling out. Her nails were breaking. She couldn't keep anything down. She was swallowing cameras and stuff, working with doctors, trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Really terrifying. And this was like before many people knew about the microbiome. So anyway, you're going to have to do N of 1 experimentation, but here's what mine looks like. So I eat the vast majority of my calories come from meat. So meat and eggs. So let's say that uh, in a given day, I'm gonna take in probably 70% of my calories from eggs or meat. I don't do dairy. I find that that does, the way that I experience it is my body temperature rises and I just feel weird. And so for a long time, I couldn't figure out what was happening. And so, cause I actually thought, cause it would happen, I would eat, um, I would eat pizza and I assumed it was the crust and so I thought, oh, I'll scrape the crust and just eat the toppings. So I would do that on the weekends. And every Sunday night, even though Sunday I don't cheat, I just eat higher calories. So I wouldn't have the crust. I would still get this really hot feeling and just feel gross. And so whenever you have an adverse reaction, ask yourself one question. What do I eat a lot of? 
And it really is that basic. And then just cut that thing out. So I was like, what do I eat a lot of? Pizza. Okay, I don't know if it's the pepperoni. I don't know if it's crust. I don't know if it's the cheese. How does pizza fit into your diet? Or this is a cheat day. It's cheat day. So um, I'll, I'll, I guess, let me give you the basic framework. Monday through Friday, I am as strict as you can imagine. If you're in the grips of uh, sugar cravings, you would hate my lifestyle. For me, it's fun. I literally don't worry about food or think about food during the week. On Saturday, I can have whatever I want. So, but I, because of how I like to feel, what I steer by is how far do I spike my blood glucose? So spiking to 150, I'll feel great. No problem. So I'll have like a small, for me, it's usually a slice of Cold Stone uh, cake batter ice cream cake, which is absolutely delicious, but it's a small slice, but it's wonderful. And then a few other bits and bobs that I'll have like, um, there are these certain chips made out of, I'm forgetting the name of the of the root, but it's a root-based chip. But if I eat too many of those, they actually mess me up. So I eat a small amount of those. So I have really fun things on Saturday, but by most people's standards, I'm very tame. And on Saturday, I'll probably have pizza. That'd be my main meal. Then on Sunday, I'll scrape the toppings off the pizza and mix it into eggs. So I'll have eggs with pizza toppings mixed into it, scrambled eggs. And I take my calories high. So if I want a, a hamburger, obviously no bun but eat until I'm stuffed, till I don't want any more food. So Saturday's a cheat, Sunday's high calorie, but clean, so natural foods for the most part, post discovering this um, dairy problem. And then go back to Monday through Friday, super tight. Um, and all seven days I do intermittent fasting. So you can think of it as whole foods only Monday through Friday, uh, a small amount of hyper-processed food on Saturday, and then high calorie, no processed food on Sunday. Do you use the slow carb method or you just even avoid stuff like beans and, you know, some of the, you know, low glycemic index carbs? I avoid all of it. So I don't, I try to keep my blood sugar at all times in a range of, um, I try to live in the mid eighties, but I mandate that for a 24-hour period that my average glucose is 85 or lower. And I, I maintained that over Christmas, just to give you an idea. And not because I was being super restrictive. In fact, over Christmas, I am not. But with intermittent fasting, it's actually really easy to keep your average glucose in a certain level if you know how to portion things out. So for instance, if I know that I'm going to eat dessert, I'll eat a meal before that to make sure that I'm not starving. So now it's like, yeah, I can eat as much cake as I want. I just don't want that much because I'm not hungry. So it just becomes a fun sort of snacky, fun thing. That'll spike my glucose up to say 150, 160. If I get north, if I get into the 170s, I don't feel good. So I, I avoid that not for moral or longevity reasons, just I don't like the way it feels. So, but there are actually ways you can keep it down through exercise, which we can get in if you care. But so that's how I steer is largely by glucose, leveraging both exercise and um, time-restricted feeding to manage that glucose over a certain period of time. But I might have, even during the week, I might have raspberries or blueberries or baby carrots, which will spike me, by the way, those will take me up to say 135, 140. And so it like that's a pretty severe spike. And so if I do go too deep into that, I can blow my uh, average for the day. So then I try to, through portion control, keep my blood sugar, say 110, 115 for maybe an hour, it comes back down pretty quickly. Um, and then 
for the average over the 24 hour period be 82, 83, something like that. And I've just done this for so long. So I like, I'm not wearing a continuous glucose monitor right now, but I'll sometimes wear them for six months at a time. So it's like, I know the things I eat and how they impact me. And you just, you really do get to learn your body. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, I mean, I went down the keto journey learning from Tim Ferriss when he came on Real Vision a long time ago. I didn't really know about it. Then I went down this whole journey and did it pretty strictly for five years. And it was amazing. I mean, you lose weight, you feel so much better. And then I'm still uh, relatively, well, very low carb generally, but also intermittent fasting, which was another benefit. Um, and we need to talk about that. So Okay, so people have got their diets right. They don't need to be as extreme as you and wear monitors. But what you're trying to do is also help people understand what these things do. Why do people care about that insulin spike? Because a lot of people are like, well, why should I care about this? Why is Tom being crazy about this insulin spike? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of reasons that people uh, should care. Now, to me, everyone needs to know what their goal is. Your goal makes demands. So the reason that you should care about your glucose is either don't care at all, or like if you're living your donut life, and I've often joked, if I had 100 lives to live, one of them would be the donut life. And I would I'd die at 27, but man, would I have enjoyed what I ate. If you're living your donut life, then you don't need to worry, but you are going to die young. If because, and, and now I'll get into, if you're interested in longevity or uh, performance, the reason that you want to keep your um, glucose levels down is because of the pro-inflammatory effects of intaking sugar. So what ends up happening is, um, in fact, people should understand this statistic. The difference between someone who is diabetic and someone who is normal is a quarter teaspoon of glucose in the bloodstream. So it is, it, it is just a, a tiny amount of sugar that you need to intake in order to spike your levels. So your body is finely tuned to keep you in a homeostatic region of blood glucose. And the way that you do that is you eat something, it's digested, it you pump a ton of glucose into your body, which by the way, glucose is important. So this is all about ranges, right? The dose makes the poison. I'm not saying intake no sugar. I'm saying you want to keep your blood sugar in a certain range. And so if you're keeping your blood sugar in a range of say, and this is probably where people are really going to freak out um, because everyone's going to disagree on this, but I feel very confident in saying if you keep your blood sugar between 65, which some people are going to say is too low, but I feel very comfortable there, to 85, you're loving life. If you spike occasionally up to 100, 110, all good, as long as it's coming back down relatively quickly, which by the way, the rate at which your body is able to return to your homeostatic state tells you a lot about the health of your system. So this is why they do a glucose challenge when you go to the doctor to figure out how you're doing. If I take a big bolus of sugar, my blood glucose is going to come down relatively quickly because I'm very insulin sensitive. So let me finish that thought about insulin. So you eat 
this sugar. It turns into glucose in your bloodstream. To a certain point, that's great. But as it starts to elevate, this is problematic. So now your body pumps, it secretes insulin, which by the way, your body will start producing insulin preparatorily. Even when you like look at the food that you're gonna eat, I'm gonna eat that sweet thing. You smell that, it hits your mouth. Like all of these things trigger the beginning of the glucose response, which is why there's debate around how much artificial sweeteners can actually create issues. So you have this insulin response to get that amount of sugar back out of the bloodstream. And the way that it gets it out of the bloodstream is it shuttles it into the fat cells. Now on the fat cells, there are receptors for insulin. So it's like, hey, we're, we're here. Like if you need us to hold that insulin, we got you. And so you take that um, glucose out, which is, is a tremendous source of energy which is why it's useful, right? Because if you can get glucose, your muscles can uptake it, the brain can uptake it, you can use it really efficiently. The problem is it can overwhelm the system. So you shuttle it into the uh, fat cells. Now, the reason you have to get it out of the bloodstream is that sugar molecules, glucose molecules are sticky. And so if something bumps into it, it will stick to it. And this is where you get into uh, the problem. So if you've ever heard of testing your um, HA1C levels, this is like the average level of blood sugar over, I forget the period of time, one month, three months, somewhere in there. So it's like, like me, if your daily average is like 85, okay, you're probably gonna have a reasonable level when it comes to that. But if that level starts getting elevated, what that's saying is that your tissues are getting glycated. What that means is sugar sticking to it. And so as it sticks to it, now you're in trouble because it's gummy. It begins to stick to things that it's not supposed to stick to. It doesn't function well within the system. And that's part of why the body's like, yo, we can't let these levels get too high because this is going to start sticking to things and just gumming up the works. So it pulls it out by using insulin to shuttle it into the either the muscles, depending on if they're being used or into the fat cells. Now, what ends up happening in a modern context is you're taking in so much sugar that the fat cells are like, yo, calm down. And so what they do is they begin stripping the sensors off of the surface of the fat cells so that it's just not grabbing, the insulin has nowhere to stick. And so now insulin's like, yo, we can't find these receptors, pump more insulin to get this stuff out of the system. And so you start getting what they call insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is the beginning of the end. If you have, it's what we would call metabolic disease, when you have metabolic disease, you cannot actively get the blood sugar, the sugar out of the bloodstream. This is where you start getting real physical damage. This is why people start going blind, why diabetics go blind, uh, because the you're literally, the easy, the layman's way, and let me be very clear that I am a layman. I am not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV. I've just talked to a lot of people that know about this. What ends up happening is you're basically burning alive from the inside. So the sugar begins to damage cells. So it damages the optic nerve, which is why you go blind. Uh, it will damage the nerve, nerves in your feet and extremities, which is why people get neuropathy. They don't even feel that their feet and toes and legs are dying and they end up having to get amputated. And this is all just from having too much glucose in your bloodstream and glucose is just it, it is what sugar turns into. It is what carbohydrate turns into in your body. And so people have to get really good at understanding that if something says that it's carbohydrate and not fiber-based carbohydrate, that is going to be glucose in your body. So people think that they get away with stuff with a lot of things that they eat and drink that they don't realize just because it doesn't say sugar 
doesn't mean that it isn't sugar as far as your body's concerned. So people have to get real thoughtful. So anyway, you're gumming up the system, you're spiking your inflammation. It is going to one, make performance difficult. Your joints are gonna hurt. Uh, you're almost certainly gonna start spilling into brain fog. You're definitely gonna get into the realm of autoimmune disease. And now your body's attacking itself. And that's where the real hell begins. And so just to catch people up is a lot of people think, well, I'm gonna run out of energy if I don't eat sugar or carbohydrates. And people need to understand ketosis and the use of ketones and how our body actually is very efficient it's got dual engines like a petrol engine or an ev and you know it can use two different ways of of using fuel so if you could just explain what fuel you're burning if you're not burning sugar because most people just think energy sugar oh i feel better now but you're not doing that which is a much more even fuel supply yeah, so I think most people, you want ultimately what they call a flexible metabolism. You want to be able to burn burn glucose. Glucose is not bad. Glucose is necessary to your survival. There are regions of your brain that cannot use ketones. So you're, no one is going to get away without having glucose, but the body's prepared for that. So there's something called gluconeogenesis. So the body can actually take Protein for sure, I think it can even do fat, but I think it's hyper inefficient. So about the time that your body's trying to turn fat into glucose, you've really got a problem, but it will certainly turn muscle into glucose. Uh, it can turn protein, dietary protein into glucose. So this is why they, I have a hypothesis. I should be very clear about where I'm at the edge of what I understand. I am now at the edge of what I understand, but I have a hypothesis that part of the reason that um, muscle mass is so linked to all-cause mortality, meaning the higher your muscle mass, the lower your likelihood of dying from all-cause mortality. Why would that be? Because it's a repository of amino acids, which are building blocks for the body, and that is how you can, you can actually metabolize that muscle and turn it into sugar, glucose, if that's what you need in that moment. So you're, you're going to need some. So just let everybody be very clear. This is not a game of getting your glucose to zero. If you do that, the prize that you win is death. So uh, you play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Uh, so we do want to be thoughtful about that. What you're talking about with ketosis is really fascinating. So to, be, to have flexible metabolism, what you're doing is saying, hey, body, sometimes you're going to have glucose. Go ahead and burn that. Other times you're going to have ketones. Go ahead and burn that. What ketones are is the byproduct of fat metabolism. So the real, this was the moment where I was like, oh, my God, of course. Ask yourself this question. Why does, if glucose is such a wonderful source of energy, why does the body store that as fat? And the reason it stores that as fat is it's a far more stable way to store that energy across time. Okay, cool. But if the body is going to say, this is my stable way of storing this energy across time, then it has to have a way of getting that back into the system and utilizing it. And the way that it does it is through ketosis. And most of the ketones are produced in your liver. So your liver sends a signal, hey, we're going to need some ketones. Boom, it releases the fat that it's going to need. And this is basically what dieting is. You're, you're telling your body, I'm going to need to release this fat to get it turned into ketones so that it can be used in the body for fuel. Now, 
Most places in the body can use ketones, some can't, but most places in the body can't. So you get ultra endurance athletes that are all ketogenic, their primary fuel source is ketones, and they're setting world records and absolutely smashing it. Some people love to perform that way, other people swear by a more carb-centric diet. This is why you get into N of one, right? So you're gonna need to test the stuff, what works better for you, what do you like? What I will say is nothing is universal, and there are some people that have a really negative um, cholesterol response to the ketogenic diet. So do the stuff with your eyes wide open, make sure you know how your body is responding. But ketogenics is the closest thing to a specialty diet that I think everybody should at least try. Now, the reason I think you should try it is because it's the only thing I know of that will fundamentally change your relationship to two things, hunger and inflammation. So for 15 years, I iced my wrists every day. I had what I thought were permanent burn marks just because I was icing them so much, just because I had inflammation. I've had inflammation since I was in my early 20s. So I just thought, I don't know why, but I've always been super inflammatory. Like when I was a kid uh, in school, you could scratch a word into my arm and it would stay with a welt just because I welted up. My dad was the same, kind of thought it was funny, to be honest, not realizing, hey, this is a warning sign that you're going to die early. Uh, so I was like, ooh, once I realized that inflammation is a sign that the body is really having a hard time, there is a problem somewhere and you need to address it very, very quickly. So this is during the quest years and meet a guy, two guys, actually, Peter Atia and Dom D'Agostino. And at that time, I still believe fat is bad. So I'm doing the rabbit starvation and I'm getting lean. So I think I'm doing everything right. And I've always been inflamed. So I didn't think about it. And they come in and they're like, you sir are killing yourself. You must immediately get high quality fast into your diet. There's this new thing called ketogenics. You should really give it a shot. And they described this diet. And I was like, there's no way I will be dead by the end of the study. And they're like, it just isn't true. You need to give this a shot. And so I started eating high fat. So for anybody that doesn't know the ketogenic diet, there's a very simple way to explain it, which is that there is a blood marker, which is a ketone. You can test for it. And if you get your ketones to 0.5 millimolars or higher, you're in ketosis. If it's lower than that, you're not in ketosis. Now, there are certain things you're going to need to do to get your body to start producing ketones. There is a reason that people refer to this diet, a ketogenic diet, as a fasting mimicking diet. So you're going to eat something that tells your body, whoa, I'm not getting any calories, even though you are getting calories. And that dear body, you're going to need to switch over and burn fat. So you're going to eat a ton of fat. Now, in the beginning, what I did was a four to one ratio, meaning for every combined gram of protein and carbohydrate that I ate, and I what, ate four what, grams of fat. What did you anchor your carbs on? I always use 20 grams as my kind That's, of maximum limit that, that is roughly where i settle out if i keep my daily in my daily carbohydrate intake around 20 to 30 uh, grams depending on how long i fast i can stay in ketosis um or i might dip out at some point in the day and then get quickly back in people will start to learn their body you can feel it when you click over into ketosis it's really bizarre so yeah, at that time, I was anchoring probably on the low end of that 20-ish, 15, if I could sneak it in. And so your food is disgusting. It's just fat. Like imagine just eating fat, like straight olive oil, uh, heavy cream, 
the fattiest nuts you can find. It's It was miserable. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. So while I'm doing this, I'm thinking, I'm doing this to try and live forever. Oh, God. But what I noticed was my wrist feel perfect. And, and you can imagine after 15 years of icing them every day, having burn marks on the back of your hands from icing them so much, I was like, what is going on? And so I was like, wow, this, I, cause I was testing it as a part of it's the exploration that people were doing around its anti-cancer properties. So I wasn't even thinking about inflammation, it wasn't on my radar, but that I was like, I remember saying to my wife, this is life-changing. And so I'm never going to take fat out of my diet. Now I didn't enjoy four to one and I wasn't doing it well anyway. And so I went through something that people call the keto flu, which you can supplement your way out of. You don't have to make all the mistakes that I made. Um, so then I figure out how to do it well, and I end up doing it for nine months. And that really showed me that I don't need to ever feel inflamed. And so there I was by that point, I'm probably in my late 30s, and I have way less inflammation than I had in my 20s. So that imbues me with, oh my God, based on what I eat, I, I may not be aging backwards, but I feel better than I felt when I was significantly younger. And so that was, that gave me this sense of like, hey, these are solvable problems. Like you really can optimize. And so at the height of my wrist pain, I was starting to get knee pain. And I thought, man, this is just how it happens. And now I, I can steer by my knees. If my knees start hurting, then I know that I've done something on my diet that I'm unaware is causing a problem. I need to figure it out. So you really do get in tune with your body. So I ate ketogenically for nine months, meaning that for call it, at least 80 to 85% of the day, and I would test my blood, that my ketones would be anywhere. I usually stayed between one and say 1 1.5, 1 1.7, somewhere in there. And I could have lived like that forever. I began to have some concerns that I was not keeping on muscle mass in the way that I wanted to. And so I backed off of a strict ketogenic diet of where I'm measuring protein it. Level. Yeah, took my protein yeah. up. I did not take my carbohydrate intake up. In fact, the only carbohydrates during the week that I eat come from berries or vegetables. That's it. And not so, even root vegetables because they've all got carbs. So yeah, anything, no. I just use anything that grows above ground as yeah. a vegetable. So people are going to be listening to this going, well, yeah, this is a lot of hard work for a bit of vanity and a, you know, and feeling a bit better and not having swollen wrists. But actually what we're talking about is longevity of life, even including fasting. We don't fast because, yeah, it makes us feel a bit better and it, it keeps us from consuming as many calories. It actually has benefits. All of this added together of what you're talking about actually helps you live a longer, healthier lifespan. Don't you think though that, and maybe your audience really is this audience, most people don't think about the future. They're so in today. I find if I can get you excited about, like if you have pain, then my emotional leverage over you is I'm gonna make your pain go away. Not maybe, I'm going to make your pain go away. And then if you're, um, you know, if you've always wanted to look good in the skinny jeans, like got you covered. So longevity is like, the high-end thing. And now if somebody wants to talk longevity, now we have to go beyond sort of that bulk of this is what works for everybody. Longevity becomes its own side question. Everything that we've talked about so far is, is table stakes for longevity. If you don't do it, you will never get longevity. See, most people, honestly, most people think 
longevity is keep reasonably slim and go to the gym. And yes, but actually diet is by far and away the biggest influence in all of this. No, no I doubt. Think. So if you, if you said, uh, Tom, you, I need you to destroy somebody's life and I'm only going to give you one tool to do it and you can mess up their sleep you can mess up their diet. Um, you can have a personal tragedy befall them, but you really have to like do damage. I'm going to take the diet every time. And I, or anybody could, you, you can just destroy anybody by making them intake the wrong foods and they will stop being able to sleep. So I didn't need to mess up sleep directly. I can mess it up through their food. Uh, they're going to be wildly inflamed, br uh, inflamed brain fog, uh, they're going to have mood, mood swings. Balance. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be crazy. So people have to understand that if you are staying slim because you have a natural genetic gift where, like, take my wife. If my wife and I have a cheat day, like, really go crazy. Let's say it's a special occasion. We go nuts. We have a little bit of alcohol. We have some cheat food. She will sweat so much. She's done this. She will take her shirt off in the morning and you can actually wring it and drips will come out. I don't, I just get fat. And so you can hear me getting fatter, it's crazy. So we have a very different metabolic response. So some people are gonna be able to stay slim even though they're eating in a way that is 100% destroying them from the inside. And so you may not see what's happening to your arteries, but it's happening. Because if you're elevating your glucose, whether you get fat or not, you have all that stuff gumming up the system. You're, you're probably breaking the epithelial lining of your gut. You're creating all kinds of problems, brain fog, all of it. And so all of that stuff is chipping away at the, the cellular integrity of the organs in your body. And once they go, that's it. And so this sustained inflammation plus the damage that you do without really realizing you're doing it, compounds. And what you're doing is you're trading off either the lifespan of health, your health span, or your lifespan itself. So let's talk a little bit. We're going to have to do another whole discussion on a lot of other things another time because there's a lot here. But I just want to get into, okay, so we've got this right. Why fasting? And then what are the kind of David Sinclair style supplements that people can do that help your body kind of compound these processes? And then I think another time we're going to go through other aspects of health, um, mood, sleep, all of this stuff, because I think people sh should be fascinated and will be fascinated by this. And you've gone down this whole journey, you know, just go to impact theory, you just see the number of videos and all of the people you've spoken to. And you're like me, you're actually being selfish because you're just learning. So you could just interview all the people in the world. But anyway, let's talk a little bit about fasting, and a little bit about supplementation. And then we'll come back to this on another day. And we can talk through some of this in more detail. Sounds perfect. So uh, fasting, I think is really important to developing metabolic flexibility. And so again, 
forcing your body into the state where it's like, I have to burn ketones because I don't have anything else. And so that metabolic flexibility is the thing I, I mentioned earlier that it will change your relationship to hunger. That metabolic flexibility is what changes your relationship to hunger. If you're a sugar burner, meaning you're always burning glucose just because you never deprive your body of glucose, so it just always has it. The second you are then deprived because a meal gets pushed off by an hour, you're in a meeting, it runs long, your performance rapidly declines because your body's just screaming out for that glucose. It doesn't have it. And so people get hangry as people talk about. So that creates where you constantly have to be worried about hunger. It's really annoying when you are hungry, your performance declines, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think people should do it for that reason. But then also you just want to give your body the ability to rest. And so when you're constantly pumping food into the system, uh, you've got the machinery running all the time. Now, I don't hear anybody talking about that the body just only has so many cycles. And so take this as a layman's hypothesis about people, I think, maybe intentionally turning a blind eye to something. I think it it is self-evident to me that your body can only do the things that it does so many times. And that's while that's not going to be the only factor because there are external radiation is going to dramatically reduce the amount of times. It's not the mile or it's not the age, it's the mileage, but it's like everything that you're doing is the mileage. And so this is why ultra long distance runners, they don't die old, man. So you're just putting a level of tax on the body. This is not a popular opinion. A lot of people are going to disagree with that. So I want to be very clear. And again, I'm not the scientist, but I, I have a feeling science will, will catch up to that idea. So that it's part of it, not that it's the whole thing. I am hyper aware of all the toxins and all that stuff. So um, giving your body a rest, we already know has significant impacts on your day-to-day -day lifestyle. So take, for instance, one of the most important things you can do is get good sleep. One of the best ways to increase the quality of your sleep is to stop eating at least three hours before you go to bed. I try to eat my last meal somewhere between seven and eight hours before I go to bed. So I stop chewing, usually by 2 p.m. I go to bed at nine. So that's seven hours every day where I haven't, I'll have sips of water, but I don't even drink much water after that. So my system is completely devoid of anything to process. And so I'm able to sleep well. If I eat only two or three hours before I go to bed, I do not sleep well. And I don't like the way I feel when I wake up in the morning. Because what's happening during sleep is your, um, the mobility in your digestive tract goes to zero. Like that's not what that period of time is for. And so it's just sitting there. And so that can create discomfort, it can create inflammation, it can create pretty significant problems, especially if you've eaten something that your body doesn't like. So for instance, if I'm going to really go on a, a bender, and let's say that my wife and I are on vacation, we're celebrating something big, we want to have some cocktails, some ice cream, whatever. So I'm going to start that at noon. I'm going to be done by three. And then I'm going to be stone cold sober before I go to bed. If we did that, I'm probably going to stay up till 10 or 11. So now I'm going to have eight, nine hours of nothing but water in my system before I go to bed. And honestly, while I don't feel like I ate normally the day before, I don't feel hungover. It doesn't feel rough because I've given my body all that time while it's wide awake to process everything to be done with it before I go to bed and shut that machinery off. So you can think of it as like, Hey, if you eat, you've just told your system, you have a lot of work to do. But then 
right as they start, you're like, but now we have to shut everything down and you need to go home and come back tomorrow. But by, you know, if you think about something, you come back tomorrow and it's sort of dried and crusty. It's like different when you wash the dishes, right? When you get them versus if you leave it till the next day, right? And that's while very much analogy that I think will get people to understand. So intermittent fasting lets everything take a break. It improves the quality of your sleep. And it also, there's almost certainly other effects like circadian rhythm and things like that. We're just from an ancestral uh, period. We just would have had these certain rhythms of when we ate, when we didn't eat, that there would be these huge amount of times between when we eat and when we um, don't eat. And so you want to create a lifestyle that mimics that because there are almost certainly things that we don't even know about yet that are going to play into this. And so I have just found that one, fasting gives me that metabolic flexibility. Two, because I'm producing ketones, I experience hunger very differently. It, while I know, oh, I'm hungry, it doesn't decline my performance. That's the easiest way to say it. And then other things, it helps me re-regulate my sleep patterns. It helps me sleep well through the night. It helps me feel great the next day. And then there also are studies showing that there are other benefits. I don't know the studies well enough to pop off on them, but every time I hear them, I'm like, yeah, there's just more and more evidence mounting that fasting help and also fasting helps repair broken proteins and so it cleans up your body as you go so you're talking about autophagy super brilliant yeah please give people a breakdown on this i think it's very important yeah i mean autophagy is the process by which that if you if you take out food from the body what's happening is the body starts repairing itself it kind of goes into this rest mode it's right okay we don't need to do anything so why don't we clean up our bedroom so they go and clean out their bedroom and taking all the broken protein, which is the things that you have damaged via lifestyle and other things, and it cleans them all up. Now, it is proven scientifically that people who kind of leverage autophagy, so people who have calorie-restricted diets or fast, live longer. And the reason being is all the junk in your body gets cleaned up. Like, much like I use my Mac Keeper to clean up my Mac now and then, clean out all the junk, it runs longer and better. And I have to place my computer as often. This autophagy process does that. It's magic. The body sits down and goes, right, we've got some spare time. Let's just sort our stuff out. Yeah, autophagy is is maybe one of the most important things for people to understand. So, And this will lead us into the other thing you wanted to talk about, which is supplementation. So... Uh, the reason that autophagy becomes important is that there are different states that a cell can go into. So you have a normal cell, it's dividing, everything is going well. You then can get a senescent cell. Now a senescent cell knows, hey, I'm dysfunctional, so I'm not going to keep dividing, but I am going to keep trying to like do my thing. The problem is that senescent cells send off inflammatory signals that cause the body to respond. So the more senescent cells you have, the more likely you are to be inflamed, which is, I think, part of the reason that people experience like vitality when they're fasting. To your point, not only are you giving the body the time to do it, but you're giving it the hormetic stress of, hey, you're starving, nothing is coming in. 
it's been 18 hours. I don't have any food coming in. What the hell? So I still need my building blocks. And so there's like a hierarchy of things that the body's going to go after. So first, it's going to start with these uh, senescent cells. So, all right, everybody, uh, thank you for stopping dividing. We really appreciate that. But now you're going to go through what's called apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. So we're going to need those parts back. And so they go in and literally... Uh, in a highly coordinated, controlled fashion, they break apart the senescent cells and they take back those pieces that they're going to use now to create other healthy cells. Now, there's another process that happens with fasting called mitosis or mitophagy, excuse me. And mitophagy is the programmed cell death of mitochondria. Now, mitochondria is a whole thing, like a whole thing. I uh, just had a guy on the show who hypothesizes that all mental illness is the result of metabolic dysfunction of the mitochondria. Utterly fascinating. Time will tell if he's correct, but he's really got a lot of internal logic that he uses to explain why he thinks that basically it's in the same way that your body begins to malfunction through metabolic disease in a way that's very predictable. We've all seen it play out with diabetic patients. He's saying, uh, this is the same phenomenon, just this is how it plays out in the brain. So very, very intriguing. But anyway, your mitochondria will go through the same thing. People think of the mitochondria as the power plant of the cell, and it is, but it's far more than that. It's a master regulator in terms of uh, hormonal production. Uh, they actually have receptors on um, mitochondria for a lot of the neurotransmitters that they produce. So they can actually communicate to each other with neurotransmitters. So you can imagine if he's right, that that could be why you've got um, that if you focus on metabolic health, you see reduction in the incident of um, mental health in, in patients. And his number one treatment for uh, bipolar, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia. Oh, there might've been another one in there, but all of those, oh, autism, the nice and controversial. So his number one treatment for all of those is a ketogenic diet. Now he's very clear to say, it's not just a ketogenic diet. There are many factors that play into this, but it, if he's looking at your life, one of the first things he's going to do is get you on a ketogenic diet. But what he's actually trying to do, not like that's some secret pill, He's trying to get them in good metabolic health. He's trying to get this autophagy and mitophagy to happen so those senescent pro-inflammatory cells get cleared out of the way, the damaged mitochondria get cleared out of the way, and now they have the building blocks to make new of both, and now you get the system running again. You also decrease the amount of glucose in the bloodstream for all the reasons that we talked about earlier. And he says just the way that that plays out in the brain is improve mental health. And so... Again, anecdotally, but he's got a lot of people. This is a Harvard professor, he's not some fly-by-night guy. Um, and he has turned around countless people in his private practice because he's still a clinician. And so he, um, he said he's, he has seen turnarounds in mental health that have been absolutely startling, including people coming off of... Um, not necessarily coming off of all their meds because he's very careful to denote coming off psychiatric meds is very high risk and you have to be very careful, but where people no longer um, need either the quantity of medicine or in some cases have been able to come off and they've completely gone into remission on things like schizophrenia, which to me was, was utterly shocking. But again, just all to reinforce your point about autophagy and mitophagy. So I think we're not going to do 
supplementation here. I think we're going to do it in the next time we get together because it's a whole other topic. And I think there's a lot to digest here for people. Well, I will say we should probably do uh, supplementation right now because I don't supplement. So I know virtually nothing about supplementation. I am super skeptical. I, I, I am not knowledgeable enough on this. I'm not the guy that you should take advice from, but man, do I urge caution, 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 caution. So I think here's one man's hypothesis. When you isolate something, the odds of it having the effect that you want it to have is virtually zero. There are going to be second and third order consequences. Like for instance, hey, I can't get any sun, but no big deal. I'll just take a vitamin D3 supplement, which by the way, I do if I can't get sun. I, that's the one thing I do supplement. But the problem is, have you thought about the fact that sunlight, literal photons from the sun, penetrate so deeply in you that even if you have clothes on, it will penetrate down through into your bone. Now, does taking a D3 supplement have the same effects? My guess is no. So I don't think we know enough about supplementation to supplement. I think people are going to get themselves into trouble. So... I highly encourage people, you need to pay attention to the things that supplements are leading you towards. But if you have a diet, vegans, I'm looking at you, that require a lot of supplementation, odds are it's not it's ideal. Not, now, if you're doing it for moral reasons- Yeah, it's not natural. No. That's right. Yeah. But there so, is a look, whole school of thought, and maybe I'll get David Sinclair or one of the others on about the M&M and all of the various other parts that people are looking at which has still been isolated yeah. mainly to animals and, I've you know, in a lab stuff. condition. Get them on. They know so much more than me. Whole... But I want to be very clear. Some of the brightest minds in this space, people that I've had on my show, off camera will tell you, oh, I, I was taking, I'll use a supplement that I've heard directly from some of the brightest minds in the field. Um, metformin. Three years ago, Tom Metformin, it, it is a silver bullet no consequences, no downside, been using it for 30 years, not a problem, 100% you should be taking it. And I'm like, mm, I don't do supplements. Now they're saying, hey man, good thing you didn't take that because now we're starting to see that there might be knock-on effects in healthy people because all the data that we got is diabetics. And so if you're diabetic, you probably should fucking take it because you have a totally different problem. But if you're healthy, you might not want to take it because it might be blocking like the effects of exercise and things like that, the, the positive effects. So all of this stuff's a huge gamble. Now I will say, the reason that I said that talking about fasting and all that will lead us into supplementation, there's one supplement right now that I am so intrigued by, and that's rapamycin. Now I don't, if we're out of time, we can stop here and we can pick back up later with mTOR, rapamycin, all that. But this is where it gets interesting. Yeah, I think this is another whole thing that I want to go down, but we'll do it a different time because I unfortunately I have to go. And I just think, I, I'm so fascinated by all of this. You've gone further down the rabbit hole, but you know I've been following this whole path. And then there's a lot more of other stuff. I think, for me, this is going to add value to people because it gets people to understand how to live healthier, feel better. I mean, what's it all worth? You can be an investor, you can be the richest person in the world. But if you're unhealthy, miserable, depressed, mood swings, bad relationships, you haven't got a life. The actual game of life itself is living mm -hmm. a quality of life. Agreed. Everything else is Agreed. This went by so fast, man. It was a lot of fun. So, I know. Yeah, we'll, we will do a follow-up on this, but I really enjoyed it. And re thank you. Picking your brain was brilliant. Okay, as I said, there's a lot there. For me, this felt like it was 10 minutes. Um, there was a lot of information. The basics of what Tom has talked about 
are you are what you eat. And it is the quality of what you eat and how you eat that creates all sorts of huge health benefits, not just in terms of weight, but energy and the actual cellular level of the body. And if you start thinking in this way, and it sounds like, oh, my God, he's crazy. He's got glucose monitors, all of that. It's not this. There are some hacks, simple ways of thinking is, you know, how your relationship with carbohydrates is a really simple one. Or can I go for a while with not eating? These kind of things, what you eat and when you eat and how you eat, are proven scientifically to extend your health span and your lifespan. One of the reasons why the Mediterranean diet works so well, or the Okinawan diet, um, is based on many of these principles. So I'm going to bring Tom back at some point to talk more about this, because I think this quality of life bucket is one of the most important things we don't discuss, discuss enough in Real Vision, the investment in ourselves. Anyway, I hope you found it useful.